And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coochie Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strider, Gary K. Wolf on the Coochie Podcast! And welcome to what is very close to Valentine's Day of 2022. And I'm beginning to feel that it's possible to make plans. I made hotel reservations for New Orleans for World Fantasy. I don't need hotel reservations for Chicago. I'm convinced that by the end of the year, I will have gone somewhere to a convention uh, and felt safe. Geez, you had to go there, didn't you? I mean, really. Now what's going to happen is nothing's going to happen, and it's going to be all about that. I feel very nervous because this is also the week, Gary, where I started, even though even though the Western Australian borders remain closed and mm-hmm. I cannot easily leave or re-enter the state to make plans, actual plans. This week, I booked a hotel room in New Orleans for World Fantasy. I did, I did not book an air, uh, uh, plane tickets, but I did book a hotel room. Well, okay, that's what I call semi-optimistic. Uh, it's, it's certainly... <laughs> it's, sort of. You, 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 have a se- you have a separate set of issues in Western Australia, which is apparently that they don't let you out. This is turning into a John Carpenter Escape from New York movie <laughs> or Escape from L.A., and now it's going to be Escape from Perth. I can just see you with Kurt Russell uh, leading the way, storming the airports. <laughs> Probably not. I, I don't think I'm up for that. You know, But I will say, I mean, we've had many advantages because of it. But certainly there are some frustrations, and one of the frustrations has to be just being able to get out of town and do things, which I can't readily. I would love to get to New Orleans. Um, Heck, I'd love to get to Chicago, which I feel very little confidence about for the Worldcon in September, even though I also looked at plane tickets to that and talked to our mutual friend, Ellen Clagius, about plans Mm -hmm. and everything else. So I'm hoping, I'm looking um, right now, like if your hope would be to get together and do things with friends, I certainly think New Orleans is a better bet. And at the risk of offending anybody associated with the World Fantasy Convention broader association, I think if we could overlook its past problems a little bit, this is a chance for everybody to maybe start getting together again. Um, And you know, New Orleans is a fabulous place to go. It's like the hotel is a five-minute walk from the French Quarter just about. So you can go and, if you know, your mm-hmm. Café Olé and Beignet at the Café du Monde, uh, stroll through Jackson Square and all this kind of stuff. And surely we must all want to do that just a little bit after the last two and a half years of 2020. Well, my only, my only concern now is if things can go wrong, they will. And it's been many years since Florida had – since since – since New Orleans had a serious hurricane. But my, my latest paranoid fantasy is everything will be fine. COVID will have become manageable everywhere. And then New Orleans will get wiped out once again and um, nobody can go. So I mean, nevertheless, um, it, it's, it's well, worth being optimistic. It's worth thinking it'll be a good year and, and seeing frenzy. I'll be going to ICFA in uh, a little over a month. And uh, a lot of people are planning on going there. It's in a part of uh, the United States, which is not even attempted to manage its COVID as far as I can. But most of the people are there are, 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 are smart, cautious people. And I think it will work out all right. It won't be, it won't be building up to uh, the size it was years ago, just like uh, the Worldcon in, in D.C. was smaller. The world fantasy apparently is getting a huge jump in, in, uh, in registration, according to their website. Yeah. 
And so I think gradually over a period of two or three years, we'll begin to again see world cons of six to 7,000 people. Uh, maybe not this year, but soon. I will say, if you, if you and I both get to New Orleans, and this is also would be true of Chicago, right, mm-hmm. but, um, in September, which is a little less likely, but if you and I get to New Orleans, th- I think I would see it as an opportunity to be, uh, to be aggressive about doing some recording for the podcast because they have some fabulous guests. Ginger Buchanan, Victor Laval, Joe Walton, Iris Compiette, Caitlin Kiernan, Andre Kodrescu, and Ursula Vernon, all of whom are wonderful. I particularly would love to have a chance to sit down face-to-face with Caitlin Kiernan again and Joe Walton. It's been a while. um, So it has been a while. So that and also just the fact that a chance to just be there and do stuff. So my current plans, for what it's worth, which is nothing, is in September to go spend like a week in San Francisco and and, and then come to Chicago. I, I've got to actually make time. If I'm going to come to Chicago for a walk on, I actually have to spend a few days seeing some Chicago because the entirety of Chicago was driving into Chicago to your place and then leaving your place, I think, last time. That's probably And the only time I've been to Chicago. Yeah. You're, and, always, you're always welcome to make a trip here when there's not actually a convention going on. Thank you. Harder to persuade the family of that, but yes. And then, I mean, I've spent a week in New Orleans back in 1993, so I'm quite eager. And I suppose to bring this into into a sort of some minor focus for people who aren't interested in, in your and my travel plans, Gary, mm. is that it is maybe a, a feeling that we're moving to a time when we're coming out of the murky 2020 period, beginning to maybe make plans. And for the sense of community that I value and I know you value in science fiction to begin to reestablish itself, to see people, to meet people, to be able to just enjoy each other's company. I think that's, uh, I mean, to some extent, pod, uh, some extent, our podcast has helped me feel in, in contact with people, especially when we went through those hundred daily podcasts a couple of years ago. Um, but on the other hand, there's a sense of reading books you're excited about, books by friends that you're excited about, and you can't mm-hmm. walk up to them at a bar and say, I really liked your book. It's not the same thing to drop them a, a note on Facebook and that sort of thing. On the other hand, there are things that you can that you kind of want to avoid seeing some people whose book you've read because you don't want to run up into <laughs> in a bar. Um, I won't, I'm not going to mention any names. Oh, come on. But I, I, I will raise a question. No, I, I, raise, that. I will raise an interesting question. No, I'm, they're... There's, there's nobody. No, that would be a lie to say that there's nobody at all in the field that I try to. But anyway, my question was this um, about the field and about the field's relationship to quote unquote literature. Uh, and I thought about this because I was reading and we've mentioned on the podcast the possibility that Denis Villeneuve will be directing a, directing a version of Arthur Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama. And I have a fond memory of Rendezvous. But it's, it's, Clark was one of my formative influences in science fiction. And yet it occurred to me that if uh, a director who's attuned to character and motivation the way Venue does, he could very much make a better story out of it than Clark did. And by that, by that, that led me to this question. Are there novels that are really good science fiction novels, but that are not good novels in any other sense? And are there novels that are good novels but not very good science fiction. Hmm. And let me explain what I'm... I, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. My sense is that um, 
if you're looking for the traditional mainstream values of a novel, characterization, gracefulness of style, uh, e even settings and plots, uh, the, the Clark was very good at some things, but by and large, do you remember any Clark characters at all? Uh, do you remember what they worried about? I mean, I remember Alvin, but Alvin was a placeholder for the reader uh, in The City and the Stars. Um, I can remember Heinlein characters fairly well because I think Heinlein wrote strong novels that were also strong science fiction novels. Let or at me least you remember Heinlein plots with strong characters. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he had, he had a couple of basic characters who moved through strong plots rather than strong characters, but I agree with you. I, I same. Anyway, you were oh, saying. His, his characters were not differentiated, but they were powerful versions of that character. Uh, all of which, all of his characters seem to me to be some version of Heinlein himself. Clark wrote about ideas. Uh, Clark wrote about uh, settings phenomenally well, but by and large, uh, Asim Asimov's a better example. Uh, the foundation things, as many people discovered when they tried to watch it on television, are terrific science fiction ideas. They are not, by any stretch of the imagination, novels in a literary sense. Um, and I, I don't think, to his, to fairness to Asimov, I don't think he was trying to write literary novels. I don't think he knew how. I don't think Campbell wanted him to. But by and large, I remember characters uh, like Susan Calvin because she becomes a placeholder uh, to some extent. You remember some of the characters um, from the Foundation series because they stand in for certain kinds of ideas. But not because they I think actually, that's, go ahead. I'm just no, what you're saying. Okay, what I was gonna uh, say, okay, what I was gonna say is that I certainly think in first of all, in science fiction, I think that for some books, some kinds of books, the characters stand in as as you say, for the exemplar for an idea or the main proponent for an idea, and that is what they do. There isn't a lot of rounded characterization or whatever else, or even in some of them, um, the kind of development you're talking about that leads to a classic kind of novel in the mainstream. And probably the most interesting person talking about this subject has to be King Stanley Robinson, who mm -hmm. talks about this in terms of science fiction having different tools that it uses to create good, convincing novels and whatever else, and they're not the same tools or the same criteria or the same assessments as you might use for a mainstream novel. So I think there are many, and particularly the, the, the closer you move to the hard end of the spectrum, the closer you are to a story that doesn't feature classic novel elements of the novel being done well, but that is not the point of it. The closer mm -hmm. you move to pulp, right, which is a different kind of a thing, or to, to you know, that sort of genre adventure fiction, it's more about delivering the classic elements of that the, the genre delivery points that it has to do in terms of action or whatever else than mm -hmm. it is about plot, set, more about character setting, those kind of things. And again, they are both different things. Now, the thing that's interesting, actually, is that science fiction is yet to make the journey that crime fiction has made to, uh, to be seen as serious liter literature. I mean, the crime novels of the 40s and 30s, 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. a lot of those are now seen as being serious novels that are excellently done. The science fiction novels of the same period quite often are not because the, the values that they were mm -hmm. following still aren't valued in the broader literary community. I think that's true, and I think one of the things that uh, happened in the history of, um, of of mystery, I suppose, is that it, it, it sort of came out of different traditions. There was the British puzzle mystery. I mean, nobody really remembers Agatha Christie characters except the kind of uh, 
almost almost comically overdrawn characters like Hercule Poirot and so forth and so on. And the, 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 the famous essay by Raymond Chandler, The Simple Art of Murder, kind of articulated this. The, the artificiality of those classical detective stories is what Hammett and Chandler and, and later Ross MacDonald and, and, and still later uh, even, uh, I don't know, Robert Parker objected to. And so they wanted to write about real urban settings and about really conflicted characters and about characters that were not simply solving a puzzle. And when the puzzle is solved, it doesn't solve the problem. It only, it, it seems to me that what happened when the hard-boiled fiction came along in the mystery genre never really happened in the history of science. Um, there were, you, you, you did not, you, you got a rebellion uh, in the 50s a little bit with a new wave and you got a little bit of a rebellion later. But in a sense, the kind of hard-boiled fiction that showed up in the 30s and 40s in mysteries didn't show up until the 60s, 70s, and even 80s in science fiction. That's probably true. I think that's probably true. Um, and I guess one of the questions you've got to ask yourself is when you look at the classic science fiction novels that don't have you know, this, these, if you like, classic literary elements performed well, are they still good science fiction novels? And I'm sure this is part of what you're touching on. Is a... Is a book like Queen of Angels by Greg Bear. Is that still a good science fiction novel if it doesn't happen to be not to be not a good novel, but not to be focused on character or whatever else? And I will, will asterisk this by saying I've seen Greg Bear be perfectly capable of this of doing this stuff well. So it's not whether he's capable or not; it's what he's focusing on in the book. Uh, it's it's I, th I think the latter point is the important point because Greg Bear is perfectly capable of writing. A deeply complex, interesting characters. The first time I probably told this anecdote more than once on the podcast, but the first time I went to dinner at Doris Lessing's house, which I know sounds like name dropping, but and it okay, it is. But the thing she wanted to know was why don't why Fine. don't more science fiction writers write, write like Greg Bear? She thought that Greg Bear was doing a perfectly, at least, serviceable job of writing characters or writing serious novels and embedding. Uh, ideas into them in, in, in complex ways. I think Stan Robinson does the same thing. There have always been literary writers like that. Interestingly enough, both Greg Bear and Stan Robinson were like English majors in college. They were, they, they, they were <laughs> studying literature. Um, I know that, I, that of which they speak, yeah. I mean, I don't want to make this look like a one-sided discussion. I don't want to look like, okay, science fiction writers are somehow responsible for doing both and other writers are not. Because the other side of the coin is you can have a pretty good novel, which is a pretty bad science fiction novel. And there aren't too many of those that I can think of. One that comes to, to mind, which kind of disappeared completely when it came out, was a Joyce Carol Oates novel called The Hazards of Time Travel. And it's a perfectly fine yeah. Joyce Carol Oates novel about kind of college life in the 50s. All the stuff that, that Oates does well, she does well in this novel. There's an awkward time travel device that doesn't really work. It's kind of something she pulled off the shelf. I think you see a lot of that now these days. I think you see people pulling ideas like time travel, ideas like future societies, pulling science fiction ideas off the shelf and trying to incorporate it into a mainstream novel. And so you result in novels that are pretty good and not as good as not as good science fiction novels as they are novels. I would say, for example, mm -hmm. uh, that Station Eleven. Is a it's a very good novel. It's not the best science fiction novel. It's Fair enough. I think that's, 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 that's well. I mean, some of it is there. There is, in a sense, if you will, mainstream science fiction and science fiction. And in oh, this yeah. case, I don't mean 
mainstream science fiction that is science fiction at the core of SF, I mean it's what the mainstream sees as science fiction. Well, right. Where, where it sets aside quite often the more detailed extrapolation of a scientific development or something or an idea. And it takes a fairly straightforward example and then takes it forward. So a book like The Road by Cormac McCarthy, yeah. you know, has a core science fictional element to it, but it's not about that at all. It's no. about something else. And it does that perfectly well. But as a science fiction novel, it's really not very interesting. And the same is true of Station Eleven, I think you're right, and of a number of other books like that. Yeah, which doesn't mean that they're bad novels. It's simply, um, it, it's, it's simply that not too many writers try to achieve a balance. My guess is, and I've heard this uh, uh, argument from a number of science fiction writers themselves, John Kessel is one of them. Science fiction writers tend to know a lot more about mainstream literature and mainstream literary techniques and mainstream literary history than literary writers trying to borrow from science fiction. In other words, science fiction is still seen as a toy box by a lot of writers. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's seen that way by, by science fiction writers. So part of the problem is that there is this whole aspect of science fiction, which is a box of toys, which is a lot of fun to play sure. with. And, and those of us who like science fiction, those of us who like A.E. Van Vogt, for example, uh, will completely forgive the fact that none of his sentences make much sense at all. None of his character. <laughs> but, but the action keeps going and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. The kind of crazed, manic things. Uh, I think the problem is that sometimes a writer who's not familiar with the whole history of science fiction will look at Van Vogt and say, well, if, if they can do that, I can, I can do, pull stuff like that off the shelf. And they end up with some kind of an unholy mess. Because if you're going to yeah, write Van yeah, Vogt, you have to be as crazy as Van Vogt. If you're going to write Phil Dick, <laughs> you need to be as crazy as Phil Dick. You can't just take his ideas and pretend they're yours. I'm trying to think whether I agree with that as, a, as a, an expression. There is no doubt that Van Vogt's prose requires you to go along with it, shall we say. Yeah, but I mean, Dick was probably a was, was a a better line by line writer than oh than yeah, Vogue absolutely. Was. You could you could I mean, there is part of his oeuvre, you know, Dick's oeuvre that you can absolutely go along with, with without having to worry too much about what you're talking about. I mean, I think Flamartier's the policeman said, "The man in the high castle." These kind of books right. are readily accessible to the world and don't need that kind of uh, allowance. Whereas books like Valus, less so. And probably some of the you know, more overtly genre books that he wrote. I was going to say, if you go back and look at the early, earlier books like Solar Lottery, there, uh, you're not dealing with a mature Dick. I mean, you're right. Dick is a much more complex case than almost anybody we can think no, no, no. of. How would how do you take in your analysis of literary whatever else? Uh, say Richard Powers. You know, Power, you know, Richard Powers' Bewilderment's a fabulous book. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, the Overstory was a, a wonderful novel. They're science fiction. They're obviously science fiction. Um, how does that sit on your spectrum of good novel, good science fiction? Uh, I've only read a couple of uh, Richard Powers' novels, and my sense is that he's taking science fiction pretty seriously. My sense is mm -hmm. that he's approaching it um, – from from a kind of literary point of view, he begins he begins as a literary writer and and has respect for the science fiction he uses in the same way, for example, that that, that a Stan Robinson has respect for the kind of mainstream values that he uses. In other words, it's it's not impossible to do both. Um, it's um, I, I see more and more writers who are sophisticated in doing both. I think, for example, that writers like uh, 
Jonathan Lethem have internalized a lot of science fiction uh, and uh, deploy it as necessary or not. I don't think they feel that they belong in science fiction, but they feel that they can use science fiction in a fairly knowledgeable way. And uh, I, I, I'd probably put powers in that group. I'd certainly put Michael Chabon in the group. There's very little doubt when when you look at it at a Chabon classic science fiction novel like the Yiddish Policeman's Union, but he kind of knows how alternate history works. He's seen earlier. Oh, sure, absolutely. He's, he's he's worked out the details with a lot of respect for the fact that this is a science fictional idea. Oh yeah, I mean, look, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think one thing that we've had to allow, as well, you have to allow, as the as the, the previous century on you know came to its conclusion and this one commenced, is that there are now so many people who have grown up with science fiction that they have familiarity with it no matter what they're doing. It's both mass, mass culture, but it's also the kind of thing that people are looking at. So it means that, a say, a Jonathan Lethem, who has very strong mm. connections to science fiction, has a lot of familiarity before he comes into the actual business of writing anything. So you get writers who are good writers who know science fiction. They know what they're um, or at least they've got an idea of whether, whether or not they're trying to do that. They know what, what, what they're doing. So there, there are examples. I mean, I do think the breakdown... Whilst, okay, whilst I don't back away from what I've said about there being criteria, aspects, features of novels that are that work in science fiction that aren't considered to be classic tools of the novel, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I, I, I continue. I believe that the, that the barrier between the mainstream and the genre novel is as extreme as we used to think it was. Oh no! I, I don't want to. I don't want to suggest it's extreme. I'm suggesting it's breaking down, but it's breaking down unevenly in a sense. Uh, oh, sure. I, I think for when I was teaching science fiction, it was interesting. Um, I, the last time I taught a science fiction course, which was a few years ago, and I had a, a variety of texts, and I'm not sure why I chose the ones I did, but the students tended to break down into two groups. One was a group that couldn't make heads or tails of anything they read. These were the students who might have been English majors. Some of them, I recall, were education majors. Um, the ones who were sustainability studies majors or biology majors, they loved the science fiction. So the, the students fell into two groups. The one novel they both loved equally, interestingly enough, was Robert Charles Wilson's Spin. Um, and, Spin and, and, and Wilson is one of those writers who has characteristically written enormously big science fiction ideas. I mean, something spectacular happens, like the sky inverts itself all over the world, or, 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 or the earth is caught in a, in a kind of frozen uh, period of time when the universe is accelerating around it. They're big science fiction ideas. But what the other students liked was, I understand these kids, I understand this family, I understand the siblings, I understand all the family stuff that's going on. Um, and, I, and interestingly enough, Wilson hasn't been producing that much in the last that I've seen lately, but he was a good example. And one of the best examples of somebody who seemed to be writing novels, whose uh, strongly character-based family-based kind of narrative mm. art-based novels were united in, in, in very sophisticated ways with the science fiction ideas. Uh, and there are a lot of writers who do that. He comes to mind because he, he was the one who was most dramatically uh, appealing to my students. Sometimes you get, notions or thoughts when you're reading and you don't fully explore them mm-hmm. but i have to say the writer that robert charles wilson always connected to in my mind was clifford simak interesting i always i, I felt that there was a similarity in approach and tone that 
the, I mean, if you think about it, Robert Charles Wilson's novels aren't full of science fictional stuff. They're full of character and setting, often right. rural setting. They are um, folks and character with a strong idea. The not as well executed, I would say, but the interesting Clifford Simak books tend to have that as well. Not all of them, but a bunch of them, the ones you'd better know for, have strength of character, a science fictional idea, that kind of thing. There's a, there's a kind of similarity and feel to them. Um, and I think it's a pity we're not seeing more Robert Charles Wilson work. It's been hmm. six years since his last novel. Hmm. I haven't looked that up, but it's uh, uh, he's an example of a kind of writer who, uh, I think you're right, does something of what Simak does. Simak's um, the one which I included in, in the Library of America thing was called Way Station. And there was a story that, called The mm -hmm. Big Front Yard, which may. And it, again, you're dealing with very realistic, uh, uh, ordinary settings, ordinary people coping with enormously big ideas. Now, there's a galactic war going on, and there's a farmer somewhere in Minnesota who somehow is at the center of it. Um, it's a sort of thing that uh, sometimes Fritz Leiber could do that in the big time. And the point is, at, at the level of character, in the case of those Wilson novels, in the case of Simak's best work, you have a, a group of readers who are not sophisticated science fiction readers who are engaged by the characters, who are engaged by the dialogue, who are engaged sometimes by the prose. Um, and another group of science fiction readers who are thinking, this is a really cool idea, and it, and these people are kind of nice too. Uh, I, I, yeah. I'm not going to say that readers fall into one camp or the other. And I think increasingly, you find readers who want both. I think increasingly the pressure is on science fiction writers to be able to do both, to be able to write a solid novel, and fantasy writers as well, solid novels, solid characters, uh, solid prose, and at the same time have solid ideas, solid sure, deal sure. with the concepts knowledgeably. I think the problem that you, when you started talking about everybody growing up with science fiction, it's true in one sense and another sense, it's another kind of problem. By now, almost every writer has grown up with science fiction as interpreted by the Star Trek universe or the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC universe or Stranger Things. And so there's a sense that, and, and the part of some writers, and uh, not the ones we've been talking about, that science fiction, like I say, is just special effects you pull off for, uh, for the sake of fireworks. I think time travel has escaped science fiction into the mainstream mm -hmm. as, a, as, as an easy narrative trick. Time, time travel, post-apocalyptic material, yep. multiverses, multiverses are now mainstream firmly, all that kind of stuff. You know, look, what's interesting here to me is I was late, you talk about pressures on writers to adapt and do different things. Mm -hmm. Earlier this week, I was sent an advanced review copy digitally, so it wasn't good fun, but it was mm -hmm. still a thing of Worlds of Exile and Illusion. Now, I don't know if you remember this book, right? But it's an omnibus of three early novels by Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm -hmm. it, it brings the together Rokanon's world, Planet of Exile, Exile, and Cities of Illusions, mm -hmm. right? And was, whoever published it originally, it's now being reprinted in Tor's Essentials line, which has been out for, around for a couple of years, featured the US edition of The Best of R.A. Lafferty. And they have added a, a scholarly introduction, as sometimes happens with these things, mm. and is common in the Golan's Masterworks, which there's plainly a similarity between the two programs. In this book, they have asked Amel El-Motar to write the introduction. Mm. 
And the one thing we, there's a lot of things we can say about Amal, mostly, in fact, exclusively positive about how good a writer is. She is a, a good critic and thinker. She is, and what she says is really interesting because mm-hmm. she points out the fact that when this you know, compilation was first put together, Le Guin was asked about it and was quite critical of the early novels that she'd written, saying she saw flaws in them, mostly mm-hmm. to do with the blending of genres, something you've talked about a lot. Right. And Amal's point is that, or Amal, sorry, Amal's point is that what's now happened is what looked like a flaw in the early work of Le Guin uh, in the 1980s when uh, Le Guin was writing about it, Mm. now it doesn't so much. It now looks prescient. It now looks timely. It's now great that these books blend science fiction and fantasy in a way. And so my my question for you that comes out of that whether or not you agree with the assertion is, is there a pressure on writers to do exactly that, to blend more than they maybe they might otherwise do, to be less rigidly genre, you know? And and and, and, I'm fine, and is that part of the explanation for why it feels like we see less science fiction these days? Without knowing anything about the marketing strategies that are out there today, I would suspect that, um, that the answer is yes for a certain kind of book. In other words, to some mm-hmm. extent, the science fiction market is atomized to specific kinds of things. Military science fiction sure, sure. readers want military science. Alter- there's a whole sub alternate history is a thing by itself now. It's practically a separate genre from science fiction and fantasy. I think that somebody who wants to do today the kinds of things that Le Guin pioneered and Le Guin's career is fascinating. Those early Ace books, you know, it's interesting. Don Walheim was publishing Le Guin in ace paperbacks at the same time he was publishing Philip K. Dick in ace paperback. And mm-hmm. eventually they moved into broader, more literary ways. Now I think uh, that a writer who wants to do any kind of traditional science fiction, who want to write in the tradition of Le Guin writing sophisticated political science fiction that involves uh, ideas, it needs to be written, I'm not, it doesn't need to be written with the grace and, and brilliance of Le Guin because that's unfair to anybody. But it has to be mm-hmm. ambitious as a novel and ambitious as science fiction. Best example in the last couple of years I can think of is such a writer as Arcady Martin. Uh, both of those novels are, they stand up as novels. They're brilliantly thought out. The politics in them is very sophisticated. The characters are conflicted. And they're still classic science fiction. Um, and to some extent... Can, can, can I, yeah. Finish your thought. And I was, I was just going to actually on, you know, you know, sort of underscore your enthusiasm for the work of... Arcadia Martin, who I, whose science fiction I just absolutely adore and think she's exactly what I want to be reading in 2022. I, in fact, it, it, it chafes that there's not another another Arcadia Martin novel due, though I do know there's a novella due shortly. So. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as though, I, I don't want to say this is in the Le Guin tradition other than in the fact that it does a number of things well. There, there's a whole list of novels over the last 20 years or so uh, that are what we would call in the tradition of Le Guin, probably too much in the tradition of Le Guin, not trying to move beyond uh, those same ideas. Martine is doing her her own thing. A lot of that has to do with a sophisticated understanding of of history and politics. Maybe maybe being an academic scholar uh, helps her fiction. Uh, But we do find a lot of uh, writers today who who are writing more complexly than they would have needed to 20 years ago. Um, sure, let me I give think you, that's true. Let me give you another example is, 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 uh, is, is P. Jolly Clark, uh, whose Master of Gen was, could have been just another 
uh, slam bang kind of action alternate history, uh, but turned out to be a really interesting comment on colonialism, on the, on the inter interaction of cultures, on the forces that make history what it is or prevent it from being what it is. In other words, a much more uh, intellectually challenging idea of, of an alternate Cairo than, uh, than he could have gotten away with. He probably could have gotten, gotten away with it now. But my point is, it's not just alternate history for the sake of alternate history. You can't just do that anymore. I don't think you can just do space opera for the sake of space opera because I think even, I don't want to say even space opera readers, but space opera readers have come to realize that there's a lot of complex stuff you can do. Space opera can't be the same after Ian Banks. Well, I think it's true. I think, I, I think a lot of uh, stuff has changed in, in, in this space. Certainly, I think if you're going to write science fiction, fantasy, well, genre fiction, if you write genre fiction in 2022, you must be willing to interrogate what you're doing as you do it, mm -hmm. right? Now, one of the things that makes A Master of Gin an interesting novel rather than just an entertaining one, and it's both, it's both entertaining and interesting, is that Clark, who is a very smart writer, spends time interrogating what he's doing as he do does it in the text mm -hmm. of the book. He's looking at the world around him. He's talking about commentary. The, I'm, I'm currently reading, still reading, which is not the fault of the book, the next R.F. Quang novel, oh. Babel or the Necessity of Violence, an Arcane History of the Oxford Translators Revolution. Now, Babel or Babel, Babel hmm. is set in 19th century Oxford College, and the protagonist is a young uh, Chinese man who's uh, been brought to uh, England by a patron to, to, to work at, uh, on translations. And what's interesting about the book is Quang very elegantly and eloquently uses viewpoint characters to analyze the underlying assumptions of the story she's telling ah. and the society they're encountering without ever actually turning it into uh, something that is hectoring or lecturing. It's a natural expression of the story she's chosen to, to tell. Mm -hmm. So she tells what is in effect a, 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 a school story, a story said at Oxford College, mm -hmm with students who are all in their late teens, I guess maybe at this point, who come from different parts of the world, have been brought together for, from different parts of the world. So you see how a young Chinese man, a young Indian man, uh, a young woman from France, a young woman from, I forget where she's from, uh, how they encounter British society at that time, the class struggle, the, the class factors, the racial, racist issues, all the of things, whilst... Having all of that, all of that uh, as an analytical thing and done very interestingly, while not actually slowing down what is a very entertaining and engaging plot in a story that's about mm -hmm. a broader thing about translation and what translation means and how it is a almost strange alchemical thing that happens in literature. So it's fascinating and talks exactly what we're talking about. Uh, this idea that texts in 2022 have to be aware and informed and interrogate themselves to be really smart, interesting texts. And I think writers are finding more and more interesting ways to do that. Multiple points of view is certainly one. Uh, we've talked before on the podcast about how uh, if, if you want to write uh, an alien invasion story, it shifts around dramatically simply by having the invasion take place, let's say, in Nigeria, uh, uh, as in 
uh, novels by Nadia Korofor and Huddy Thompson. Uh, it's, it's, it's not as though you have to completely reimagine the aliens, but you're looking at it from a different perspective. And multiple perspectives are, I think, as you described in the Quang novel, the kind of thing that um, is becoming more and more characteristic, or I guess aware perspectives uh, is what I'm thinking of. I was, I've been rereading, uh, well, not re rereading some and reading for the first time others, short fiction by Sam J. Miller, who has his first collection coming out in about a month or so. And uh, one of the stories deals with... Title, uh, Gary? Hmm? The title of the story is The Heat What's of Us. Oh, the title of the collection is Boys, Beasts, and Men. Which everybody can pre-order from Tachyon, right? Yes, it's a Tachyon collection. Tachyon is doing really interesting things these days. Terry, um, you must say about this book, sorry. I just didn't want to go by because, first of all, everybody says I talk too quickly on the podcast. And also they say sometimes we don't actually tell them what the books are we're talking about. So in this case... I wanted to make sure we did that. Anyway, please continue. Well, I was, there, there's a story in it about the Stonewall Uprising in 1969, which is, by, by, by today's standards, it's historical fiction. I mean, I, I don't even know how old Sam would have been then. But again, it's, it's one of these things which is told from multiple points of view. The conceit of it is that the collective rage and injustice and hurt of the people being oppressed in 1969, the Stonewall uh, Rebellion, became an outward expression of this, collectively create this massive heat, which incinerates a whole bunch of cops. It, it damages others. It's, it, 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 turns, it turns the actual Stonewall, Stonewall Rebellion into a science fictional apocalypse. But it does so by uh, pretending to be a kind of a documentary film with each uh, section written from a different point of view. There's, there, there's a tough cop who hates, quote, the, well, I'm not even going to use the term I use. There's a cop who's secretly gay. There's a, 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 a bookstore owner. There's a, a, a college administrator. And it's, it's, it turns out to be the same story told from multiple points of view. And that's a, that's, it's not an unusual literary technique, but it's something that science fiction has only fairly picked up on. Um, there's a, the, the idea of uh, slingshotting points of view, which is something that you can't do very often, but he does here. Uh, I'm trying to think of other examples. There's a classic uh, novel by Ernest Gaines in which each chapter is a different character's point of view, and in that chapter, the character will meet another chapter um, and, uh, and, and, and so forth and so on. The, I think it's A Gathering of Old Men. I'm not sure. But my point is, there are a lot of modernist and postmodernist literary techniques that have been around, been around for, uh, in some cases, let's say 100 years now. After all, Joyce's Ulysses, if I'm not mistaken, is 100 years old this week. And now, for a long time, science fiction writers could, could kind of get away with not knowing what was going on in the general literary world. I don't think they can get away with that now. I don't think they want to get away with it. I think that they are That's as shit. much drawing on the tradition mm -hmm. of modern literature as they are on drawing on the traditions of science fiction. I mean, that's, I guess, against the, co the constant never-ending caveat that as writers, critics, we're, living, we're focusing on a particular part of the science fiction field and the rest of the science fiction field continues on unchanged you know, as it ever was. Mm -hmm. oh, you know, there's true. still count countless military science fiction adventures being written bought, read, enjoyed, that have got nothing to do with this. 
Well, and by the same token, we could say there are lots and lots of English village murder mysteries that are being written and 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 and, and consumed by people who just want more and more and more Agatha Christie. Colorful, slightly more colorful villages, maybe, may slightly modernized, but but yeah, I mean that's true of everything. There are also people who like to read the same romance novels they read uh, thirty years ago, or the same uh, sort of mainstream comic divorce novels that is every every kind of literature has its channels that have been cut out for for decades uh all i'm saying yeah. is that uh, those are no longer you, you're no longer required to flow in those you may say for example that despite a hundred years of modernism science fiction doesn't have its version of james joyce's but you know there isn't any science fiction does have something like dahlgren uh, which is arguably an extremely complex and uh, a novel which is only rewarding for people who willing, are willing to put the work in on it. Um, what about something like House of Leaves, the Mark Danielewski book? That seems to be something that seems to be a writer, I know nothing about Danielewski himself, seems to be a writer who's aware of both traditions, who's wanting to, and, and mm. actually more than just modernism, That that's kind of, it's got Ulu Poe stuff in it. It's got experimental stuff in it. There's, there's all kinds of, uh, I guess, tricked out writing in, in that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, if he's going to use science fiction ideas, he needs to know something about them. Um, I'm just saying, I guess, I guess all I'm saying is that the resources available to a science fiction writer are much more liberal than they were 20 or 30 years ago. And the resources available to a quote unquote, quote unquote realistic writer are more available. One of the trends I've seen in the last few years, and I don't know whether this was begun um, with, um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but the, um, uh, okay, let me give you a more, a more recent example. Um, um, okay, wait, 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 wait. I'm, 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 say something. I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> well, I've got something else to talk about, and I don't want to like okay. run away to that subject. Though I will say, whilst you're thinking, hold your thought. That I do want to say that part of the reason that everybody's getting a ramble today is we were going to talk to a special guest this week, yes. but we had a technical issue hook it, making that all happen this week. So next week we will talk to Liza Grontromby about the Locust Recommended Reading List, which we do every February, on and off over the last. 10 hmm. years. Uh, so our apologies to Liza for the inconvenience that she had today, and we look forward to that, and we hope that our listeners will look forward to that. But segueing that back to your point now, Gary. And that, that pause gave me time to remember what I was talking about. And I don't know if he's responsible for it, but it seems to me that David Mitchell may be the one who started a trend of, let's do a partly historical, partly contemporary, partly near future, partly far future uh, Let's just draw all the things we know from historical fiction, realistic fiction, adventure fiction, science fiction. Uh, he's done this. Matt Bell's Appleseed did something very similar. The new Emily St. John Mandel novel, Sea of Tranquility, does something similar. In other words, these are, these are three novels by novelists who have paid some attention, obviously, to historical fiction, to realistic fiction, to, uh, to science fiction. And feel free to just incorporate them all into the same novel. It could be that uh, The Hours, which actually wasn't science fiction at all, but was partly uh, partly set in the, partly a life of G Virginia Woolf, partly a contemporary uh, reader of Virginia Woolf. But the idea of multiple timelines, which include the future, is no longer yeah. considered a purely science fictional device. The other, no, person I might, the other person I partly blame for this or give credit for this to 
who's never probably given enough credit for her influence on science fiction was Doris Lessing. And I'm not talking about her Canopus and Argos science fiction novels, which even she wasn't really satisfied with. But at the end of her uh, most famous series of novels, The Ch Children of Violence, she wrote The Four-Gated City, in which her character Martha Quest is taken into the 21st century seamlessly uh, because, as one argument I've heard made, Lessing was really thinking about the whole 20th century in science fictional terms, so it made perfect sense for her to move into the future. The future no longer sure. belongs, belongs to science fiction. It belongs to anybody who wants to write about it. Sure. Uh, do you think that when you look at the, the development you're talking about that applies to David Mitchell, that maybe there are precursors in people like Christopher <laughs> Priest or M. John Harrison? Um, yes, there are. The difference is that Christopher Priest and M. John Harrison only fitfully escaped the science fiction label. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think to some extent, uh, the creation of completely artificial environments like the uh, Dream Archipelago in, in, in Priest or Vericonium in, uh, in, in, in the case of Harrison, were there ways of trying to escape the actual uh, constraints, both of genre and of mainstream fiction at the same time? Um, it's interesting to note now that... Uh, this year, M. John Harrison is a judge of the Booker Prize. I mean, that's something that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Possibly not. Possibly not. <laughs> Do you think that these evolutions and changes that we've been circling around, uh, the you know, genre blending, the need to be aware of background and context of background, all these other sort of things. Do you think they put additional pressures on readers and particularly on, say, reviewers and critics to be more aware, better informed, so that they're able to get more from the texts that they're encountering in the field? I think, well, for, for speaking as a reviewer, and here's a good example, uh, because we mentioned this on an earlier podcast, and uh, I was talking to, we were talking to David and, and Ian about this, uh, that something like when I, when I read the new Emily St. John Mandel novel, it has many more mm -hmm. connections to her novel, The Glass Hotel, which I hadn't read. So I thought, I'd better read The Glass Hotel. So now, in order to keep up with a writer like that, I need to have some familiarity with her quote-unquote mainstream fiction, as well as her earlier science fiction, which was, of course, Station Eleven. Um, and as far as readers are concerned, I don't think it's pressure. I think it's, uh, it, it's a group of writers trying to open up readers. I see these writers as trying to take their readers into their science fictional uh, environments. I mean... Uh, and, and trying to do it in science fictional ways, yeah, by which sure. I mean uh, the, the, Emily Saint, uh, the, the new Emily St. John Mandel novel, The Sea of Tranquility, is in one sense more ambitious than Station Eleven was. But Station mm -hmm. Eleven, I, in, in my mind, is an easier concept for a mainstream writer than imagining a future is. And I, by, by that I mean this. Station Eleven is a world, it's a future in which you've stripped parts of our world away from in other words, sure. you've had a plague. Civilization has collapsed in various ways. Um, this has been something that mainstream writers have been doing for decades. If you go back to one of the classics of the post-pandemic genre, I guess, was uh, Earth Abides, George Stewart's novel, which almost yeah. everybody has read. It's a huge influence on people like Connie Willis, for example, who wrote an introduction for a recent edition of it. But all he had to do was to take things away from the world as we know it. Strip away civilization, take us back to basics, have us learn language, have us learn culture, have us preserve. Bradbury did this in, in Fahrenheit 451. I mean, it's, it's always been what 
one critic called a subtractive world. And it's always been easier for mainstream writers because all you have to do is look at our world, represent it, and then take things away. Writing science fiction about different futures requires adding things to our world. And you may be adding yeah. things to our world like space travel. You may be adding robots. You may be adding uh, universal kind of uh, connectivity. You might be adding, adding the metaverse. Um, and that's more complicated. It's easier to get that wrong because you have to imagine things that are new rather than take away things that we already know. And which Fair is enough. one I mean, reason, I... that, without being yeah. too specific, that a lot of mainstream writers begin to stumble a little bit when they're trying to add new things because they're trying to pick up things that they picked up from whatever science fiction they may have seen in the movies. Um, and Fair enough. I would have segued into a conversation, but we are not out of time, but we are drifting towards the end of time, about an article that was published online earlier this week mm -hmm. by friend of the podcast and critic extraordinaire Paul Kincaid, mm -hmm. who did an excellent book, I think it was last year, about Christopher Priest. And, and he did an excellent he, book on Ian M. Banks before that. And uh, he has an excellent book coming out, I believe, on Brian Aldous. Well, hang on. Wait a second. Slow up. Whilst it's probably excellent, you can't actually say it's an excellent book about Brian Aldous yet, unless you've already read it, Gary, can you? I read it. I did. Oh, okay. It's in my, ser it in my series. So. Uh, it, of course, it, it, was, it was an excellent book. And interestingly enough, it touches upon some of the issues that we've just been talking about because Brian Aldous, like Christopher Priest, like him, John Harrison, like a number of, always had ambitions to be a mainstream writer and wrote mainstream novels as well, um, but is probably going to remem be remembered only for his science fiction. But that's a separate issue. You wanted to talk about Paul Kincaid's essay on the art of reviewing or on a taxonomy, a taxonomy of reviewing, which yes. is absolutely which is interesting. I think almost entirely correct. Um, I hate to say that about somebody my, who writes about reviewing so much better than I do, but it's really right on. My, my, my temptation in retrospect, Gary, my temptation in retrospect is to place a link to the essay on a, tax, a taxonomy of reviewing. We should do that. Encourage our listeners to listen to, listen to go and read the, the article. And we might ask Mr. Kincaid, to come and join us here on the podcast to talk about his taxonomy reviewing and also to answer the, the question which bedevils me about his forthcoming Brian W. Aldous book, which is, do we think anybody's going to keep reading Brian W. Aldous? Um, impossible to answer at this point. I mean, it's, does, does anybody think that you're going to go on reading Clifford Semak, who you mentioned earlier in the podcast? Um, I think that your adding Clifford Simak to the Library of America was one of the greatest gifts you, that could have been done for his memory because I, hope so. I think outside the core of the field, I think he's not going to be read very widely. And I think a lot of his work will, well, I'm not going to say drift out of print, but will drift into that half state where it exists in an endless pool of digital texts, but there are no physical copies in the world anymore. Right. That I think be. that's quite likely. Um, now, Aldous, who I've who I feel ha had real prominence in the field and was seen, understandably, as an important writer. I feel the interest in his work has waned. And as I've said here on the podcast and conversation with you before, I think often for a writer to be actively engaged with, after their deaths, their work to be actively engaged with, they need a core work for, it, for that, that interest to hang on. 
Le Guin has Earthsea, Moorcock has mm. Elric, uh, Liber has Fafford the Grey Mouse or whatever else. And that, that sort of thing helps you know, keep interest alive as you move into the future. Um, because without it, I think it begins to drift. And I think Aldous, for all of his skill and the excellence of some of his work, doesn't have that. He doesn't have the thing that everybody reads, you know? Well, the irony of that, of course, is that what was supposed to be that work, what he clearly intended to be that work, and I was, and he was good, I was a good friend of his for a long time, and he really thought the Heliconia trilogy would do that for him. And it turns out that I don't know if anybody reads it anymore. I think that his earlier novels are more widely read uh, now than his, his, his masterpiece is self-proclaimed. And the Heliconia is it thing terrible that I tell you I couldn't get to the end of Heliconia? Um, well, I will admit I didn't read the third volume because I thought I knew what was going on by then. But, but by then, he had turned Heliconia into his own version of Thomas Hardy's Wessex. He was writing you know, Victorian novels set on this planet with long seasons, essentially. Um, and yeah. I think it's, it's, very, it's very powerful work, but I don't see any motivation for newer readers to go into it um, unless you just want to read long, pleasing novels. I think Heliconia will belong in science fiction history the way a lot of really solidly written uh, Victorian novels remain in print among people who like Victorian novels. Yes, I think that is true. You know, one thing I've begun to develop faith in, Gary, hmm. I have to begin to develop faith in the simple fact that there is no hour that you and I can't fill with waffle. That's I think a compliment to both of us, or and a horrible insult to both of us, depending on what. Uh, but but, but I, 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 I think I think we're on to something here, though. I mean, I think we're on to something which, by and large, is salutary for science fiction and salutary for literature. And that is that yes, while all these submarkets go on, uh, the idea of a kind of meta market, the idea, and I, this is what I think when I try to think the way publicists think. Uh, and I get lots of letters from publicists now wanting me to read this book because it's so-and-so meets so-and-so. What they're trying to do is combine markets. What they really want to do, yeah. uh, what the publicists of, let's say, the new Emily St. John Mandel novel want, they want to reach all the science fiction readers. They want the science fiction readers to, to pick up this. They want all the people, certainly, who read Station Eleven. They want people who like historical fiction to do it. They want people who like, in other words, the ideal market for a publicist is to bring all the genres together and have them all buy the same book. That's never going to happen. But the extent to which that encourages writers to just write science, let's have some science fiction and fantasy and horror and historical fiction and psychological suspense. Let's just put it all in the same novel. I think it at best gives writers a freedom to shoot for that multi, that mega market. I don't think I don't think it really exists, but by and large it's getting more that way rather than less that way. In other words, mm. I think science fiction readers and fantasy readers are maybe more tolerant of literary fiction than they have been, and literary readers, I'm fairly certain, are more tolerant of science fiction and fantasy than they have. That could be true. The world is ever-evolving. But it sounds to me like we have some p podcast ideas in front of us. We have Liza Grotrombi next week. Uh, some, we at some point, we will maybe talk to Paul Kincaid. And Has it even occurred to me... Yeah. No, go ahead. I, I was going to say we're going to be talking to Paul, I hope, at some point. Um, I hope so. I mean, particularly, I mean, ignoring, you know, allowing for the conflict of interest, Gary, and the, the fact that, you know, you are his editor on this new Brian W. Aldous book that is coming out in June of this year, I think, 
from the University of Illinois. Right. Although I should say not the line editor, not the University of Illinois Press has professional editors who do the job. So I don't want to take credit Thank for that. Thank goodness they're professional editors, Gary. Well, in addition to which Paul doesn't need a lot of edit experience. I'm sure he does not. He's very good at what he does. Um, and we might even ask, I thought it might be fun. Uh, in October, we could see if Dan Simmons might come on the podcast and celebrate the 33 and a third birthday of Hyperion. Really? Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned it's that old and Hyperion is still, the Hyperion series still shows up uh, when I look on uh, you know, Twitter feeds and I look on things on Facebook. Hyperion seems to be rediscovered by newer generations of people. Uh, so it's, it's, it seems to be a, a kind of science fiction space opera epic that uh, has some holding power. Never been out of print. Never been my favorite Dan Simmons book. I'm tempted to ask what your favorite Dan Simmons book is. Well, you know how every now and again an author has, or in fact an artist, has an incredible period where they mm -hmm. produce some, you know, a, a great body of work, whatever, they put a lot of stuff in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. I would contend to you, Gary, that 1989, 33 years ago, Hmm. was as good a year as any science fiction writer uh, has had. In 1989, Dan Simmons had three books come out, three novels. Mm -hmm. He had Carrion Comfort, a big, sprawling, epic horror novel, which was terrific. Mm -hmm. He had Hyperion, and in between the pair, Phases of Gravity, a near, ah. a near mainstream novel, uh, which I think is his very best work, personally. That's an impressive run, absolutely. And oh. Carrie and Comfort, uh, it, it would be interesting to look back at some of his earlier work like that. Carrie and Comfort now has a kind of additional relevance because it was uh, one of the first horror novels that dared to take on uh, aspects of the Holocaust. Um, and it was yeah. something that a few writers tried in various ways. Um, uh, on the other hand, I wonder if you go back to Dan Simmons's first novel, or at least his first widely successful novel, Song of Kali, which is set in India, I wonder if there are culturally problematical aspects to that by today's standard. Look, I'm going to say that it is statistically probable, although I've not look, you know, read the book myself. I haven't in, looked at it in decades. Uh, but you know, I, mean, I picked that book up. It came out in 85, and mm -hmm. I probably read it in early 86 before it won the World Fantasy, it won the World Fantasy Award, didn't it? Maybe it won the World Fantasy Award. I thought it did. It was really... Uh, I would have to look to be sure. I, I, I remember yeah. it was really scary. Yeah. Yes, it did. And in fact, it, it managed to both win the World Fantasy Award and come in at number 16 on the Locus Best First Novel category. Ah, okay. That shows how and much. And if you ask it. yourself whether the, well, whether the 15 books above it have lasted as well, the, the most polite thing I can say is no, they have not. There are a couple of books on, on the list that you would have read and remembered. Mm -hmm. Summer Tree by Gabriel, by Gabriel K. You know, plainly lives mm. fondly in memory. Uh, the Warrior Who Carried Life by Jeff Ryman. Yes. Which is a fabulous thing. Also, um, the others, greater or lesser, I, I think In the Drift, Michael Swanwick's debut is there. But it was the year that Contact by Carl Sagan won, a book mm -hmm. that, you know, not many of us reread, even though it is mentioned fondly in a recent uh, werewolf TV series starring Isla Fisher and Josh Gad. Okay, that's something I didn't know, but I'll certainly check that out. <laughs> Well, yeah, don't. It's not that good. Well, it's anyway, interesting. We have filled. We have filled our time. We filled our time. We've got lots of things we haven't talked about. We should probably do this every week, or maybe let's do it every two weeks and see if we can last for ten years. <laughs> every two weeks, you know, honestly, 
Let's see how we go. Oh, whatever. No, we can do it every series. I, okay. Going back to every week, I don't know, Gary. No, we're not going to Never mind every day. We've told people we'll put out 22 episodes this year, and we promise they won't all be like this one. Uh, let's just stop. Let's just stop. Let's just say until next time, when we expect to have a yes. guest. This has been the Cood Street yes. Podcast. It has indeed.